If you've ever read that wonderful story, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you will will know that uh, Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy go into the wonderful world of Narnia. And they have lots of wonderful adventures, including meeting Aslan, the Christ figure. Well, in the the next uh, uh, episode in the Chronicles of the Narnia, C.S. Lewis wrote Prince Caspian. And in that book, as the, the four children go back into Narnia, they're much older now, And as they're trudging through the woods, Lucy suddenly sees Aslan, shining white and huge in the moonlight, lying in the middle of a grassy lawn. And with her heart bursting, she rushes towards him. And this is what Lewis writes. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her and she gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, he answered. Not because you are, said Lucy. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. C.S. Lewis has expressed a profound truth. That as we grow and grow grow older, our vision of Christ ought to expand. And as Jesus gets bigger and fills the frame of our personal world, We will love him more and honor him more. So I want to challenge you this afternoon. Has your vision of Jesus expanded as you have grown older? Or is he still a puny Jesus, a domesticated Jesus, someone that you summon when you feel you need him? I want to challenge you to let your vision of Jesus grow bigger. Let me just pray that we will do that. Father, we we confess that our vision of you has often been small and we pray today that as we look at this chapter in Hebrews, we will see what you have done for us, your work for us, and what that ought to mean for us as we persevere to the end. Amen. Well, the the, the book of Hebrews will help us find a bigger Christ. We see this uh, in his wonderful achievements at the cross and what that means for us as Christians 2,000 years later. Our passage this afternoon begins uh, with that word, therefore. You remember your grammar? Therefore is a word that signifies that what is about to be said rests on what already has come before. What has come before is really the heart of Hebrews. It's the bit we've skipped over to get here. Um, If you go back just in your Bibles to chapter 4, we ended the first talk at 4.13. And then uh, verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. And from that point on, right through to where we are now, chapter 10, verse 19, the writer has been explaining how Jesus is that high priest. Uh, So the therefore that we've just seen refers to these five chapters. 
It is a complex section, but it is rich, spelling out Jesus' work as priest. Not just a priest, but the high priest. The chief priest at the top of the line. So I need to give you a quick summary of this section so that you can make section uh, so that you make sense of the therefore. Now let me do that by making some quick points about priesthood and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. I'm going to just put some quick points up on the screens for you. The first thing about uh, the system and priesthood in the Old Testament is that it was given by God to his people. The system was good. It was God's good gift to them. Secondly, the priest could only be appointed by God. No man could put up his hand and say, I want to be priest this year. This was not a democracy. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, God appointed one of the 12 tribes, Levi, and they were the priests uh, where the priests were to come from. The third thing about the priesthood and the sacrificial system was that the priest was the mediator between God and humanity. He was, his role was to stand as the mediator, the go-between between God and people. He was a representative of the people. He was one of them. He was weak. He was tempted. He was sinful. So he could understand their needs before God. The fourth thing is that uh, the system was the way of maintaining fellowship with a holy God. This is crucial to our understanding uh, of the importance of the priesthood. For God is a holy, pure, majestic God who cannot have anything to do with sinful people. So the only way for men and women to be able to approach God and have fellowship with him is to have their sin removed, to be forgiven. And that's what the priesthood and the sacrificial system did. So you can see that it was necessary and it was a good gift from God. The fifth thing, forgiveness or atonement. And atonement just means um, the way of uh, bringing God, a pure God and sinful man together. That forgiveness, that atonement was costly. The removal of the sins of the people uh, was very costly because people could approach God. Um, sorry, before people could approach God, the priest would have to make a sacrifice on their behalf. A bull, a goat, a lamb, whatever it was. They would be killed uh, because only shed blood could deal with sin. Every day, daily sacrifices would take place. And then as we heard from uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus this morning, once a year, uh, the high priest would go into that special part of the tabernacle or the temple called the Holy of Holies. And there he would offer a goat. These sacrifices were repeated day after day, year after year. Because the people kept sinning. <laughs> if I uh, read through Leviticus last year and I was struck by the enormous amount of blood that was spilt every day. It must have smelt terrible. But it reminded me again of how seriously God takes sin. And how every vestige of it must be removed before we deign to approach him. The sixth thing, it operated in a man-made tabernacle. Now, the priest uh, operated in this physical place called uh, the tabernacle, which was the portable uh, place that was carried around on their wanderings, and then the temple after Solomon. It was the only place on earth 
that God allowed his name to dwell. I've got a, a model of it here. Uh, where you can see, uh, and this is the, the very simple tabernacle model, where you could see that there was a, a place in the, in the front uh, where a lot of people would gather, but then you would move through a, a doorway, a, a gateway into the next part where there were certain things, and then finally beyond that was the Holy of Holies. And between the Holy of Holies and the, the inner place was a large curtain, and only the high priest went in there once a year beyond that curtain into the Holy of Holies. See, everything about the tabernacle and the temple screamed out, approach me carefully, you are on holy ground. But you know, that tabernacle eventually rotted away and would have to be replaced many times. The temple was eventually destroyed. So it was a man-made tabernacle. Then the last thing about the, the, the priesthood and the sacrificial system was that it was only a shadow of the reality that was to come. God's secondary purpose, as in so much of the Old Testament, in giving us this system, is that it would operate as a model of what was to come. That is, it would foreshadow Jesus. So it had a use-by date. Well then, let's come back to Hebrews, because you needed that background to understand what's going on in Hebrews. And in the five chapters between end of chapter 4 and now, we learn a couple of things. We learn, first of all, that Jesus, our priest, our high priest, was everything that the Old Testament priest was. That is, he was appointed by God, but this time God appointed his son, not just any man. Secondly, he was fully human, therefore he could still be our representative. He was a complete human. Um, therefore, he is able to represent us before God. And thirdly, he's able to understand our weaknesses because he is human. You see, he had been tempted in every way. Did you know that? Every way that you've been tempted, Jesus has been through. Every single last one of them. But there is much more, much more. And this is why Jesus is superior. He's not just like any other old high priest. He's a permanent high priest because he lives forever. Never again does a new high priest have to be appointed upon the death of the old one because Jesus lives forever and is even now at the right hand of God ready to intercede for us at all time. He is tempted but he is without sin. Uh, yes, he's been tempted, like I said, but he has resisted all temptation. The Old Testament high priest was a sinner as much as any other man. And he had, he had to atone for his own sins before he could act on behalf of anyone else. Jesus is sinless, the perfect man, never having to atone for himself. Thirdly, he offers the ultimate sacrifice. He offers himself. Uh, it's, uh, his sacrifice is unlike any other. It's not the blood of bulls and goats. It is himself, his body, his blood. Jesus' blood shed on the cross to atone for the sins of men and women. Nextly, his sacrifice is once for all. It's never to be repeated. 
What, what we celebrate as the Lord's Supper when we gather together is a remembrance of that great, of the, of that great sacrifice, not a reoffering, not a re-sacrifice. And lastly, he operates in the heavenly tabernacle. Jesus is superior in that he does not operate in that tabernacle made of tents uh, of animal skins, but his priesthood is exercised before God in the heavenly realms. Now that is what has gone between, between chapter 4 and chapter 10. And just let me read you a couple of verses out of chapter 9, just so that you uh, can see how this is all summed up. Chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to have suffered many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, on the basis of all that, the writer then says, therefore, on the basis of all that, be confident. Be confident to do what? Be confident, in verse 19, to enter the most holy place. What's the holiest place that you know of? Surely it's in the presence of God, isn't it? As one of God's redeemed people, the writer of the Hebrews urges us to draw near to God, to have access to God himself, because Jesus has shed his blood for your sins. You remember his holiness? Remember, you can only approach God if your stain is removed. And the access has not been accomplished by the high priest going past the curtain into the Holy of Holies and sacrificing a goat. That is the old way. There is now a new and living way. New because it did not exist till Jesus opened it up. And living because Jesus is alive and because it leads to eternal life. See, before, to gain access to God... The, whole, the, whole, the high priest had to go through the curtain once a year. Now, the way is open for us because the curtain is Jesus' body. See, verse 21, when he says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, is saying the same as verse 19. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. They are saying the same thing. We now have access to God because of Jesus' death. And the other, other reason to have confidence, firstly, there's a new and living way, and because there is a new high priest. A new high priest over the house of God, that is God's people. One who is merciful and takes our concerns before God. Friends, do you see the dire situation we humans would have been without Jesus? God's magnificent holiness and our vulgar and hideous sinfulness means that like the Old Testament uh, Israelites, we are as far from God as we can get. We cannot enter his presence unless our sin is removed, unless we are made clean. In the Old Testament, that meant the priest took a lamb or a bull or a goat and sacrificed it, spilt its blood. 
But 2,000 years ago, the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice was made. God in the flesh spilled his own blood to blot our sins out of his sight, to remove them from his presence as far as the east is from the west. Forgiven, dealt with, done deal. Not another sacrifice ever again. All because of what Jesus achieved at the cross. We are made clean. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We are made clean, white as the driven snow, able to draw near to God, to approach the pure Holy One. Can you imagine coming into the throne room of God, being stunned and and dumbstruck by God's magnificence? And you think, what on earth am I doing here? And you want to hide behind the nearest pillar and God beckons us. He says, come in. Come closer. All has been dealt with. You are welcome here. Imagine you are visiting Washington and you find yourself on Pennsylvania Avenue in front of that large white house, the White House. And you think, I think I might pop in and pay my respects to Barack Obama. (laughs) Now, you know that that's impossible because at the gates, there are these huge gates and there are large marine guards, hulks of men with little wiry things coming out of their ears and they're there to stop you coming in. Even if you could get past them, there's this long driveway leading up to the front, the front porticos of the White House. And then you've got to get through those doors. There are more security guards and more people all around. And then there are myriads of corridors. I know that because I watch the West Wing. There are myriads of corridors as you try to weave your way to get to the Oval Office. And there are more guards standing out there. That would be absolutely impossible. But imagine as you're standing at the front gate of the White House, one of Barack Obama's daughters, Barack Obama's daughters, skips across the lawn. And she says to the security guards at the, front sta- uh, at the front gate. That's okay, he can come in. This is a friend of mine. And she takes your hand and you go up the front driveway. You go through the front doors. You go past all the security guards. You wander through the corridors. She knows where she's going. And she bowls into the Oval Office and she says, Daddy, this is my friend. And he says, welcome. Well, that's a bit what it's like with God. There is a distance between us and God, but Jesus takes us across the distance. I've been discipling a woman in the last uh, little while who's become a Christian in the last two months. She's from a strong Roman Catholic background, and we met for coffee last Friday, and she said to me, tell me about what reconciliation is in the Bible. And so I explained what that was. And I said, why do you ask? She said, oh, we have this thing called reconciliation and confession uh, um, at at church, the Roman Catholic Church, and I said, well, what is it? And she said, well, you have to come to the priest and you confess your sins and and then he gives you some things that you have to say and and that's the reconciliation thing. I said, oh, okay, wondering where she was going with this. And then she said to me, but you know what? I don't feel like I need to do that anymore. I feel like I can just talk to God and I don't need that priest anymore. And I went, yes, (laughs) she's really understood what it's all about. That is what it is. 
I want to ask, is this a picture of you? Have you been made clean? Has your sin been dealt with? Are you able to enter God's throne room with confidence? Come to Jesus with a sincere heart that merely trusts that that merely trusts him, a heart that says, Dear Lord, I want my sin removed so that I can enter God's presence. I trust your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you. Have you done that? Maybe there's someone here who, today who hasn't done that. I want to pray that prayer right now because if that's for you, then I want you to pray it in your mind. I want you to tell God that you want to come before him. You want to draw near because of the death of Jesus. Just let me pray. Dear Lord, I want my sin removed so that I can enter God's presence. I trust your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you. It's quite a simple thing, isn't it? But it comes at an enormous cost to Jesus. Well, on the basis of Jesus' death, the next thing that the writer urges us to do is to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. He wants us to hang on. Hope is not just the act of hoping. You know, I hope the weather is fine for the picnic tomorrow. Rather, it is the hope. It is objective, real hope. It is content-based hope. It's objective and it's real because it's based on what God has promised. For what does the next phrase say? For he who promised is faithful. Hebrews chapter 6, go back and read it, says it's impossible for God to lie. He is absolutely faithful and will keep every promise he has made. What promises has God made here in Hebrews? We have a better and lasting uh, uh, possession. We will enter God's rest if we persevere. There is a rich reward waiting for us. There is a heavenly country, a heavenly city. I am 60. I think of life differently now than I did when I was 40. I think a lot more about my mortality. In another 20 years, I'll be 80, very close to the end of my life if I have not already passed on. You know what thoughts sometimes go through my mind? What if all this is not true? What if I die and I get to the other side and there's nothing there? When those thoughts go through my, my mind, you know what I do? I go back to Hebrews. I go back to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6 verse 17. Let me read it out to you. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever. I go back and I read that and I hold unswervingly to the hope for he who promised is faithful. I am weak, I am doubting, but he is faithful. The third thing we now need to do, because Jesus is our high priest who died for our sins, is to encourage one another, to spur one another on. 
We saw it this morning in chapter 3, where we saw encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. God is so kind and gracious to us that when he calls us into a relationship with him, into his kingdom, he doesn't let us stand out there alone in the, in the cold. He puts us into a family, his family, and gathers us together because you are more likely to persevere, to stand firm to the end, if you have others around you urging you on. Apparently, these Christians in Hebrews were staying away from their Christian meetings for whatever reason, not quite sure, fear of persecution maybe, maybe it was a bit boring and dull when compared to the colourful Jewish synagogue meetings, um, or maybe they just, didn't, they just thought they didn't need to go. So the writer says, do not stop meeting together. You cannot encourage people to persevere, to hang in there, unless you know them unless you're in relationship with them, unless you're actually with them. When I was converted as a teenager, I was encouraged to be a twicer. That is, a Christian who went to church twice on Sunday morning and evening. Well, today there are still lots of twicers around, but now it means twice a month. (laughs) What's happened? Why is it that our church congregational numbers fluctuate so much? If we get an invitation for a picnic or a barbecue or a family do on Sunday morning, why can't we say, yep, I'll be there after church? Or if you get an invitation to do something on Sunday afternoon, thank you, yes, I'll be there, but I need to get back for evening church. Is it that we are so busy after the other six days, that Sunday becomes the day that we collapse. Uh, that the church, the church becomes a thing that we pass up on. It's the dispensable thing. The day that we cram all the extras in and church gets pushed out. The reality is you need church to survive as a Christian. Otherwise, you may find yourselves at the bottom of that spiral, ending up far away from the living God. The truth is that those who fall away begin by staying away. But you also need church to be able to honour this instruction from God. Encourage one another, spur one another on to love, to push each other in godliness, to be able to say to that Christian brother or sister sitting next to you, isn't it great that God has gone to the enormous cost of giving us his son, Jesus. Let's keep hanging in there and making it to the end together. In other words, to pluck your brother or sister out of that spiral. The phrase used here is, let us not give up meeting. It's actually much stronger in the original. It says, don't abandon your brothers and sisters. The same word is used when we are urged not to abandon the Lord Jesus. See, not attending church is tantamount to abandoning the little ones for whom Jesus has given his life. And the encouragement is urgent because the day is approaching. Jesus will return soon to judge his creation. On March 10th, 1904, the great escapologist Houdini accepted a challenge to escape a complex system of uh, handcuffs. There were six locks on each handcuff, nine tumblers on each lock. 
I don't know what that means, but it sounds very difficult. Um, don't know what tumblers are, but there you go. Now, a crowd of thousands of people are at the London Hippodrome to watch him. So he came out on stage all trussed up with these locks and he crouched into a box to go to work. After 20 minutes, he rose from the box and the roar of the crowd was amazing. But then it stopped as they saw that he still had the, the handcuffs on. He called for a light. He needed some light down in the box. Back down the box, another 10 minutes. Again, he rose, roared the crowd, but he just did a few knee stretches, still all handcuffed. Back down in the box, after 15 minutes, again he came up and again the crowd cheered. But he just had a pen knife in his mouth and he slashed at the clothes that he was wearing. Back down in the box, and after 10 minutes, he came up, arms aloft, free. Great cheers and applause from the audience. Afterwards, he was interviewed. And the interviewer said, why did you keep coming up out of the box and going back down and coming up when you hadn't finished your job? And he said, I needed to hear the encouragement of the crowd to keep going. And let me tell you, we need the encouragement of the crowd. Your friends in church need the encouragement of the crowd. There will be some people there in church tomorrow who are in danger of hardening their hearts. They need to hear you singing and saying amen to the prayers and asking them afterwards, how are things going? At this point in the, the passage, the writer senses that there are some in the congregation who are well and truly on that downward spiral and are in fact teetering on the edge of apostasy. That is complete rejection of everything to do with God. And he wants to pull them back. So there comes a very serious, stern warning about judgment, about judgment in verses 26 to 31. And he tells them that they ought to be frightened. He says, we're not fooling around here. We're not playing games. We are playing with fire. Now, this passage here in 26 to 31 is not directed at those who fall into sin. And let's face it, that's all of us, isn't it? But at those who deliberately keep on sinning. It's a deliberate, continual turning of the back on what they know to be the truth. They know what God has done in Christ. They understand it, but they intentionally, knowingly reject it. I was at an airport a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the plane was delayed some three hours, and so I had a long wait in this airport. And there was a little boy, about four, and uh, he kept going up to those rubbish bins with the push lids, kept pushing it like this. And his mother said, don't do that. So he stopped and he went over to the bin on the other side and he looked at her and he put his hand on the bin and he pushed it. Um, you know, that's what people are like, aren't we? And that's what these people are like. They look God in the face and they reach out and they take what is forbidden and they try to stare God down. No shame, no regret, no pang of conscience. Look at the way that the writer describes their actions here in verse 29. First of all, he says it's like trampling the Son of God underfoot. That makes you cringe, doesn't it? Treating Jesus with utter contempt, like knocking him to the ground and constantly stomping all over him with hobnail boots. It's deliberately shocking. The second thing he says is that... Uh, Treating as unholy the blood of Jesus that sanctified you. 
See, Jesus' blood is the only thing that can, can make any person holy and clean. And to reject it is a powerful misjudgment. It is to say to Christ, I know you shed your blood, but I don't care less. I've got other things to do, thank you very much. And the third way he describes it is that it insults the spirit of grace. When the spirit of God graciously revealed the truth of the gospel to them, they said, I don't want grace. I don't want what you are offering to me. I can get through life on my own. Such hubris and arrogance is breathtaking. And these three together paint a truly awful picture of persistent sin and an attitude of contempt for the salvation secured for them through Jesus. And the writer says, for such a person, there is no sacrifice for sins left. You see, Jesus' sacrifice puts an end to all other sacrifices. There is no other way that sin can be forgiven and taken away. And if a person rejects that sacrifice and continues to reject it, what else is there? If this sacrifice is rejected, all hope is lost. And what they can expect is the only thing left, judgment and hell. Now, I know that there's a, a gentle old grandfather view of God in many churches and in much preaching today which can't come to terms with a God who will judge and consign people to hell. And isn't that because we have this overinflated view of ourselves and those we love, that we're really okay at heart, we're lovely people, and surely we don't deserve that horrible punishment? And we have an underwhelmed view of God. He is so small in our estimation. He's sort of like just a bigger version of us. You know, it's like, looking through a microscope at something very small and the, microphone, uh, the, the microscope makes it look huge, of massive importance. You know those CSI forensic type shows when they put some bacteria and blood cells under the microscope and they look huge and wiggly and, and dreadful. Well, that's us. We put ourselves under the, micro, under the microscope and we say, aren't we important and wonderful? Then we take a pair of binoculars and we turn them around the wrong way and we look through the wrong end. And what is of momentous proportions, God, seems far away and insignificant. Yes, he's God and we'll come to church two out of four Sundays to pay homage to him. But, but look at how important I am. And we have it all the wrong way around. We need to take the binoculars and turn them around. See God for who he is. Huge and holy, and pure, so that we can't even look at him. We all deserve judgment and hell. Did you know that the person who speaks more about hell in the New Testament is none other than Jesus? Jesus fully understood the reality and seriousness of hell. Do you know why he knew that? Because he went to the enormous cost, enormous lengths, so that people would not have to go there. He died to keep us out of hell. And if he knew that in the end, kind old grandfatherly God would just smile and say, I can't send anybody to hell, then his death would have been an enormous waste, a tragic mistake. Jesus' death matters 
because hell is real. The last section, uh, the last sentence of this section is one that ought to make us shudder. It is a terrible thing, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It doesn't matter whether we believe in hell or not, or whether we like it or not, it is the truth. And not because God is vindictive, but because he loves Jesus and loves his son. Sorry, loves Jesus, loves his son, loves justice and loves us. I would not want anyone here to do that, to fall into the hands of the living God. Can I urge you that if you're on the verge of walking away from Jesus, that you think again. Philip Yancey wrote a book called uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. He tells this story of a man who asked him if he could have coffee with him. A friend of his, a Christian man, asked if he could come and have coffee with him, which he did. And as they were sitting there talking, the man said to Philip, I've got a question to ask you, Philip. Philip said yes, and uh, his friend said, Can God forgive sin? Why, yes, of course he can, said Philip. He loves to forgive sin. Does he forgive even, you know, every last sin that we commit? Yes, yes, he does do that. Then the man said, well, I've fallen in love with my secretary and I'm about to leave my wife and family and go and live with her. Will God forgive me? And at that point, Philip Yancey said, I was in a terrible bind. Because, yes, God can forgive that. But the thing is, when we intentionally do it, we intentionally sin, we intentionally trade on God's grace, then we are in a dangerous position. And he finished, Philip Yancey finished, finished that story by saying, now years later, he did go and uh, uh, leave his wife and married the secretary, and now he has completely rejected Jesus. Because once you do it once, it's easier to keep on doing it again. It's terribly insulting to Jesus to think that you can deliberately sin and expect God to keep on forgiving you. Well, this very severe warning is followed by warm encouragement in verses 32 to 39. He says, remember. Remember, think back to those early days of being a Christian. You endured a great contest There were insults and public shame and terrible persecution. There was looting of your homes. There is evidence for that under the Emperor Claudius in AD 49 when the Jewish Christians were expelled from Rome, tossed out, losing all their property. And they'd not just been stoic about losing everything. They'd, They'd accepted it joyfully because they knew that what they had lost piled into insignificance when compared to what they would gain by standing firm. They would have better and permanent possessions. That is their their eternal inheritance stored up for them in heaven. And the writer says, not only did this happen to you, but you counted it a privilege to stand with other Christians, shoulder to shoulder, who were facing the same persecution. You counted it a privilege to be treated in such a terrible way because of your allegiance to Jesus. See, the idea here is is that as we look back, we will see that God has sustained us through those terrible times. See, their treatment at the hands of others was meant to humiliate them so they would turn against Jesus 
Uh, But God used that persecution to strengthen them and to give them even more confidence to persevere. So remember, remember back, be encouraged. God stands by you in these tough times when hanging on is hard. And he wants to bring you to rest in his kingdom. Think for a minute of the story of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, two faithful Christian men who lived in the 16th century. And against the orders of uh, Queen Mary, they went about preaching the Bible, reformed biblical doctrine and were thrown into prison and eventually taken to the Tower of London to await their execution. The night before the execution, the mayor of Oxford offered to keep Latimer uh, company through the night. But the reformer said, no, tonight I shall sleep as soundly as ever I did. Tomorrow, my breakfast may be somewhat sharp, referring to his execution, but my supper will be most sweet. He meant, of course, his execution would be painful, but it would bring him into the presence of the Lord, his saviour. And so... On the 16th of October, 1555, Latimer and Ridley were led out to the place of execution to be burnt at the stake. Uh, On seeing each other for the last time, they hugged, and uh, Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either dampen the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. With that, both of them kneeled down at the stake, prayed, and then uh, uh, they stood up, and they were secured to the stake, tied around this uh, lot like a big bonfire. And as they were secured, Ridley broke out into prayer with the following words. Oh, heavenly Father, I give to thee most hearty thanks, for you have called me to be a professor of you, even unto death. I beseech you, Lord God, take mercy on this realm of England and deliver the same from all her enemies. Then they brought a bundle of sticks bound together, burning with fire, and laid it down at Ridley's feet. Then Latimer called out to him, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man, be the man. We shall this day day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And so the fire being lit, when Ridley saw the flame flaming up towards him, he cried out, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. And he kept on saying over and over again, Lord, Lord, receive my spirit. Latimer, crying as passionately on the other side of the stake, Lord of heaven, receive my soul. He received the flame as though embracing it. And after he had stroked his face with his hands and as it were bathed them with a little in the fire, he soon died, as it appears, with very little pain. See, Latimer and Ridley are wonderful examples of what the writer is saying in this last section. They lived by faith. They endured the flames for they knew what was promised them. They knew that God would welcome them into his presence. They did not shrink back. They did not throw away their confidence. And you women who here today, do not throw away your confidence. Remember that confidence in verse 19? It was the confidence to enter the presence of God because Jesus has died for you and has become your high priest. And the writer said, draw near. That is the very opposite of shrink back. Will you draw near or shrink back? 
God is saying to us here in Hebrews, I gave my son to tear down that barrier that kept us apart. He shed his blood so that you need no longer feel any embarrassment or shame. Why are you shrinking back? Why are you moving away? Hebrews calls us to persevere, to endure, to hang in there till the end. I used to think before I, was, before I prepared these talks in Hebrews that the greatest joy was in seeing someone become a Christian. I no longer think that. I now think my greatest joy is when someone dies a Christian because it's not how we start the Christian life that's important. It's how we end it. We have four kids and we have told them the gospel all their lives. I, I want to be still telling the gospel to our kids when we are on our deathbed. And if one day in the future you are wandering through a hospital somewhere and you hear that Leslie Ramsey is on her deathbed in a ward, I want you to come into me and I want you to urge me to keep on trusting and to persevere to the end. Let's just finish by looking at uh, the last couple of verses of the book of Jude. Uh, this little book in the New Testament is a great summary of what we've been talking about today. He's talking about persevering. And first of all, he says, But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the and so build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. In other words, it's your responsibility to persevere. You have something to do. Build yourselves up. Keep trusting. Keep persevering. Hang on there. But the next verse says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others away from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. This is another responsibility that you have. Look out for those who are doubting around you. Warn them, encourage them, encourage them to keep on trusting. But the best bit of all is the last two verses where we read, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks be to God that he is faithful and that he is committed to hanging on to us. We should be just as committed to hanging on to him. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we have read here in Hebrews, particularly about your Son. We pray that we would have a bigger view of who Jesus is, that as we grow older, Jesus will grow bigger. We thank you for that work on the cross as an atonement for our sins, the sacrifice for the sins that we could not deal with ourselves. We thank you that on the basis of that and the fact that he is now our high priest in the heavens, at your right hand, that you call us to draw near to you. Father, we pray that we will do that. We pray that we won't shrink back. We pray that we will not experience your judgment like that. Father, thank you so much for the work of Jesus.
And we pray that as we go from this place today, that we will be encouraged to hang on to you. For we know, Father, that you are hanging on to us. We thank you for your commitment to us. We thank you that you are able to keep us from falling, that you are able to present us before your glorious presence without fault and with great joy. We thank you that you are our saviour. We want to give you glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.